Let me see you put them up Reach the skies, touch the stars up above Cause it's one time for the underdog I'm Patrick Bidev, your host of Value Team, and today's episode is slightly different, and uh, here's why it's different. So think about being a billionaire or being mega wealthy, right? We're talking a few hundred million dollars or billionaire. This man today, Mark Demos, his expertise is to sit down with billion-dollar families, one of them is 12 billion, that he talks about in the episode, helping their kids not get addicted to drugs and to go back living a normal life. It is a very weird, very different, very difficult, and that's what he does for a living. Mark. Thank you for being a guest on Value Team. I really appreciate it. Thank so you. when did you wake up and says, you know, I want to be around these guys that are mega wealthy and help them with their family legacy? Like, how did that come about? You know, I, I was brought up in a lot of wealth uh, growing up, went to a really great school, looked like a castle, looked like Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. So grew up around a lot of wealthy people. And then also when I, I came to the U.S. and I landed up in Redmond, Washington, I was raising my children there and going to Redmond High School is where Microsoft is. So I used to... What year is this, by the way, when you um, went to Redmond? I got to Redmond in about 91, 92. Okay. And so really got to know a lot of the parents. A lot of the parents would come to me with their problems and one weekend, one of the parents said, well, do you have a program that, that you know, we get to have so we don't have to send our kid to overseas? So I said, yeah, we do. So I put it together over that weekend and about Tuesday morning, we had everything up and running and ended up actually having my kids work with me, uh, with a lot of these kids who were younger than them, probably two or three years younger, but that's when I started. And, and where did you see from, because you know, a lot of people out there, you know, I want to be a millionaire, man. I wish I was a mega millionaire. I wish I was all this. Have you noticed a common trend with everybody that becomes mega wealthy with them and their biggest struggles with their family? I, I have. You know, it's not with all of them, but I, I, I've seen the big issue with all of them is this. How do I define my life personally? How do I figure out what matters in life? When I don't have to do anything and I will be okay, I don't have to find out what I'm good at. I don't the children, you mean? Like the, the children of the mega wealthy families? Yeah. And even, well, even the parents, you know, with a lot of the early Microsoft families, they got wealthy very quickly. Mm. And I remember reading an article back in the mid-90s about all these young bachelors who now were worth three, four, five million dollars, and they didn't know who was their friend. Why did they, why did someone want to date them when nobody would go near them in college? And so now they had money and all of a sudden they were, they were somewhat celebrities. So I was trying to figure out why does someone love me? Why does someone want to be in my universe and be around me? So it really becomes a question that involves all of my life. And friendship and relationship is one of the huge issues with people with money. How do you know they want to be with you? Or how do you know they're your friend? Wow, what a good point. So just not knowing who, who's a real friend and who's there just for the money part. That's right. And you know, you ask most people, who doesn't want to be friends with someone who's really wealthy? Because you get to go to nice places, you get to see nice things, you meet famous people. And uh, everyone wants to be around them and they don't know who's who. It's a real struggle. Wow. So, so their their challenge is one. Those who are worth a hundred million and up. The kids' challenge is a different story, right? Give us some examples of what you've seen on both sides. I think for the kids, the big issue becomes why do I have to do anything? For a lot of these kids as well, when they do something wrong, their parents can hire an attorney. I, I remember working with a kid at Redmond High School, and they'd broken into the school. Okay. They'd broken into the chemistry lab. 
and was in juvenile court. So juvenile court, you do something like that and you're going to get a slap on the wrist. The parents put together a team like the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm -hmm. they, they had three or four experts, they had three or four you attorneys. Me. And then they found out when you go to juvenile court, you really can't use, you really can't do that. It's a judge, you don't have a jury even. And uh, it, it just becomes something, it's a false sense of really never having to thrive in life to create your own happiness. Because there's a trust fund, there's money down the road, I will always be okay. And the problem with human beings is this, when I don't know what I've got to give to this world, and I'm dependent on what my parents made or my grandparents made or their name, and I don't find out who I am and what I've got to give, and it's not just a lack of a purpose, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's just almost a self-hatred because I'm useless in this world till I know what I've got to give. Mm. So how do, I, how do you help them get there? How do you help them get clarity? Very often it's trying to help the parents. It's helping the parents push these kids to engage in life. It's not allowing these parents to bail their kids out. It's not very often having these kids, you know, these parents send their kids to schools where their name is known and they're, you know, they, they've donated the football field. Uh, there's a big building on campus. I had a friend that I went to college with. His name was Mark DeMoss, identical name. When I first landed in college, I thought I was a celebrity. I didn't know who this guy was, but I was treated for about three days like I was an absolute <laughs> celebrity. Until three days later, I walk on campus, I'm a foreign student, I don't know anyone, and I see this Arthur DeMoss building, and his dad had founded uh, Penn Life Insurance, and, but it was really interesting. The dad died young, but these kids, the three kids, didn't inherit anything until they had graduated from college, they were married, they had children, and that they had worked for themselves for at least a few years. I don't know what, what the... That was his system, how he created it. That, that was the way he did it make your own way in the world. And it's very difficult because parents always want their kids to have a better life than them. But you can't give your kids a better life when you've taken your talent, you've applied it, and then think that you can have a kid wow. not do anything in life and mm. create their own identity. They trade off yours and you can't do that with anything in life. So, so is, is, it, is it, do you ever sit there where you say, okay, these kids can be saved because they're five, six, 10 years old. They can be saved. But these kids cannot be saved because they're 25 years old, they're already on drugs, they're partying, they have access to anything and everything, cocaine, you know, ecstasy, Xanax, Vicodin, whatever they yeah. want. I don't know how I'm gonna save these guys. Mm -hmm. Is it different on how you deal with these parents and their kids at different stages of how old their kids are? Generally, the parents won't call us till they, the kids are teenagers and they're already acting out. So for most parents, they, they, they probably do a good job early on or they think they're doing a good job. But it still becomes a problem when, again, you're named after grandpa and you're named after you know, your father and you're number three or number four and everybody knows who you are and everybody treats you differently. So it really is trying to engage with parents early on if parents are willing to engage to give their kids as normal a life as possible. And so often it's, uh, it's a real struggle because parents want to give their kids more. They want to give their kids opportunity. But kids have to learn how to earn it. And so what we do with a lot of these kids is we make them go get a job. If they're 16 and they can work and they, they, they have the ability, we get them to go out and work and know what a paycheck means. We get them to find places to give money that they've earned, not to give away what their parents have earned. What if they rebel against it? 
What if they're like, I don't want to have my job. I'm not going to keep it. And you can't force them to keep it. No, we can't. And it ultimately becomes, will the parents buy into what we're trying to say? Because it's a very small window of opportunity. Mm. Very seldom can you work with a kid once they're over 18 or 19 and they're out there ready and everything, you know, everything is already taken care of. They're in university and for a lot of them, they'll drop out of university. They will be on drugs. They will be, they will have not run away. They'll just have disappeared. They've got a credit card and they can use it whenever they want. So for some of the parents, it's saying you've got to cut them off. You have got to allow them to be able to create their own lives. But the greatest worry that every parent has is, but he'll hurt himself or herself. They'll kill themselves. And they've already, you know, there are enough examples out there of, of young, of children who How do that. How common is that from parents' fears? Is that very common for you when you see that? I think it's more common with, uh, with children of, wealth, of wealthy people because they've tried everything and they haven't found anything that really delivers back to them something of real substance in life. They don't have a sense of purpose. And they've relied on and they've tried every drug, they've tried every vacation, they've gone everywhere, they've met people. Nothing has been denied them. And I, it's my own personal belief that nothing external is ever going to touch my life until I figure out what my life has that I can give to impact the life of another person. It's empty until I do. If I give away my parents' money, what have I done? Nothing. I haven't earned it. I haven't used the sweat of my brow to go and work and to give to somebody something that's gonna cost me. It doesn't cost me anything if I give away my parents' money. So you hear a story like J. Paul Getty's. Yeah. I know you and I were talking mm -hmm. about J. Paul Getty, you know, one of the richest mm -hmm. billionaires. He built some incredible prop into his museum in LA. Sure. And the criticism he gets when he died, what he did with his money. You know, everybody says, hey, this guy was a cheapskate with his family. He was a terrible father. He left nothing for his kids, his boys. That's, that's the terrible example of a father. What do you say about what he did? I think there's a lot in terms of his own morality that was problematic in terms sure. of that. Yes. <laughs> you know, growing up. But I, I, would, I would almost err on the side of saying, let your kids figure it out themselves push them to find out who they are, push them to find out what they've got to give to life. And it's not giving to life what you've created yourself. They have got to find it out themselves. And there are ways to do that. We, you know, I was, I was talking to a young guy, you know, who's coming to, to Dallas tomorrow that did just that. We helped him define his life separate from everything else in his family. And he's created a life. He had dropped out of two universities, was failing out of everything. And he's now engaged in life. He's actually going to come work with us and work with college students to try and help them figure out who they are. To do what you're doing. To do what you. we're doing. Because now, how wealthy was his family? What, what, what kind of wealth did his family have? Family owns a major league baseball team. Okay. They own a major mutual fund. Uh, combined family worth, still probably around $10, $12 billion. So, I mean, that's no limit. Whatever no, you not. want, you can get anything you want. And they have. And they've met everyone and they've been everywhere and they, they lack nothing. Anything you want, you can have. How, how much did this guy you're talking about get close to the breaking point? Very. I'm talking breaking point like killing himself. Like we, I'm talking a, we were called up to go to his home with his mother's home in Vermont to be able to get him out of his room. And he was locked in there. And he's like, he's, we've got permission to share his story because he wants other other young people to know he was he was strung out in drugs everything imaginable and he had just lost hope in everything 
And when you've, you're failing in school and you're failing in just in life in general, and nothing matters, nothing seems to make any sense. And then to come to him, to ask him, start saying, well, what are you great at? What are you exceptional at? What have you, what do you know you can give to touch the life of another person with? And it wasn't trying to do the mental health thing. He'd seen therapists, psychiatrists, he'd seen everyone. Mm. It wasn't saying why you're broken, it's saying, where are you strong? What, what's unique about you that you have when you understand it, you can impact the life of somebody else. And focusing on that, you know, one of the things we did within a year of that, we, he went to San Francisco for an internship. We were up in Vermont again, and we said, well, Charlie, when are you, when are you going? He said, well, next week I'm going. So I said, well, how are you going to get there? Well, I'll, I'll fly and my mom will ship the car. So I said, Charlie, you've got two days. You're going to get your car ready. It was Christmas in Vermont, ice everywhere. And I said, you're going to drive. You're going to get in your car and you're going to drive. He'd never seen this country except from a jet. And he, it was one of the big things in his life that he wow. simply drove across this country. He didn't even think it was possible. It wasn't even something that ever... <laughs> I mean, and I, you tell me, go on a road trip. I've, been, I've hitchhiked through Africa, through Europe. I've been to every state in the U.S. If I've got an opportunity to travel, I will. And he did. And it was the fir- one of the first major things that he began to do where he knew he could do it without anybody else doing it for him. And he was in his early 20s by then. What was his reaction afterwards to you when he oh, did that? Like the conversation, he, what was it like? He went to stay with his aunt, who is the president of, of a major mutual fund company. Up until this point, no one would ever hear from Charlie. He was quiet. He was this total introvert. Anyhow, he's going across country, and I'm being woken up in the middle of the night, pictures from the day. He's texting me as he's going across country. What, what, what is this place? He's going through Utah, and he's, he's you know, sending me pictures of the salt flats, and he didn't even know they existed. And, you know, and he gets to San Francisco, and we see his, his aunt a, f- a few months later in Nantucket, and she says, well, someone turned Charlie off. He can't shut his mouth anymore. Wow. But he had nothing to say in life before wow. that. He now had life to share. And it became, yeah, it really became something so different. Now, is Charlie's the grandson, right? He's mm-hmm. one. And how many grandkids did this family of 12 billion have? There are 16. 16 of them. 16 grandkids. Out of the 16, how many of them did you work with yourself, or two, you, two of them? Yeah. And how are, if percentage-wise, you know, because you see how this affects it. I read a book uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago, 15, 16 years ago, called The Ultimate Gift. Mm-hmm. It's a story of a billionaire yeah. where he's going to give this thing to his nephew, where. 12 lessons, you got to go watch these videos, and he dies, and you know mm-hmm. the whole scene, I how do. this play. Yeah. So a uh, person dies, you know, he has his attorney sitting here, all the people are sitting there saying, you're here to get my wealth, here's what we're going to do. But the chances of these kids making it is slim to none. Out of the 16, how many are living a normal life where they're fulfilled, they're happy, they're making a difference in people's lives? I know of three of them that are. Out of the 16. And I, you know, I'm not certain as what the other, I know quite a few of them are really struggling really, really badly. Um, and so, I mean, I, I haven't met all of them. I've met quite a few of them. Mm. Uh, but what I, what I understand is that most of them are really struggling to really become something in life with every opportunity bar none. There was nothing that they couldn't or were, you know, had the ability to do. Yeah. Grandfather, I think, gave about four hundred million to Yale University. So he's he's really invested in education to Yale. to Yale University. Very invested in education, believes in it, and um, 
opportunity and wealth and all those things don't determine the outcome. Ultimately, it comes down to regardless of what or how, it's my life. If you're willing to look at your life and say, this is who I am and this is what I have to give, it's a very simple formula. You cannot be happy and you cannot be have friends and you cannot find purpose in this life till you know what you've got to give to impact the lives of others with. Out of those 16, can you do anything to the other 13 that have no desire to change? I met with one of them when Charlie was in town a few months back. We went to Top Golf and kid's a scratch golfer. And he was on a scholarship <laughs> at, a, at a university in Southern California. He's not doing anything now. Um, I tried to reach out to him. He was the first one that we actually worked with and continues just to struggle with life. Didn't get past probably one semester at SMU and that was it. And has not really gone back to school, has just drifted. It's really sad because he's a really personable kid, really like him. And my hope is we'll, we'll meet up again when Charlie comes into town and you know somehow that I can impact his life, but ultimately it comes down to choice. So if I don't want to do anything, I don't want to change, there's nothing you can do to help nope. me change. So step number one is me being willing to want to do something about it. Yes. So you're saying Charlie at the point where you had to go get him from his room and mm -hmm. pull him out, he said, Mark, please help me. Yeah. I want to do something. Absolutely. Okay, so step number one is mm -hmm. a person wanting to change. Okay, so from your, is there a point of no return? Is there, like, you know, in, in uh, you said you could pitch 90 miles an hour cricket, mm -hmm. right? You could you could yeah. jump high, you can do a lot of mm -hmm. things, but you can't run very fast, right? True. Okay, so that's what you were saying. <laughs> True. So, uh, uh, but, but you know, there's certain people that you look at and you say, okay, this guy can be saved. And pitching, they'll say, past this age is too late. Mm -hmm. You know, if you wave above this as a person that wants to go be a jockey for Kentucky Derby, it's just not, you and I can never be jockeys. Those horses True. wouldn't be able to race anybody. We'd be all <laughs> right. in the back, okay? Our bodies are not made for jockeys. True. But is there a point of no return to say, these kids can no longer be saved? Is it 15, is it 20, 25, 30? Or is it age doesn't matter, it's the person says, I'm sick no, of it, it, I want to change. it does matter. I think okay. it really I, does. Okay, interesting. I, I, I think after 16, 17, 18, it becomes very difficult, wow. and the older becomes more difficult. But again, I, it, my, my personal belief is moral choice and spiritual choice, whatever you want to call it, is available throughout our lives. I, I think I look at some people and I think they can never come back from this. They're done. They, they are just so hard or they just don't, nothing matters to them whatsoever. And I, I've met a few. <laughs> and Very interesting. But I, I just, I can never believe moral choice is taken away from people and the ability to own their own lives and to say, how do I give to people honestly and openly? So, so then I'll take a step back. I read a book many years ago called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged. Mm -hmm. I, I'm all about anticipation. I think if the people had a meeting today, three hour meeting with one of our executives, very difficult meeting today, they came in, he and his wife, and I spent three hours talking about anticipation, anticipate X, Y, Z. Say I'm watching this, say I'm listening mm -hmm. to this, and I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm saying this is amazing. And I just shared this with my brother. My brother's worth 120 million. He just sold his stocks. He just got married. They're about to have kids or they have kids. What are some things I, the $120 million person or the $600 million person that's building a young family, what can they start doing now to prevent getting to the point of what you're saying today? It's the same with all the parenting. I really believe it. And that is you, 
you study your children, you watch them, they're all unique, they're all different. I have three kids, they are all so different. It's looking at and it's beginning to say what matters to my children. Well, you know, with one, you can have a kid hurt in the playground and one runs up and he's putting his arm around him and another one's running for help. It's just they, they react differently to things. So it's really watching your kids. It's saying, what do they love in terms of school? You know, is it what subjects do they love in school? Who are their friends? What sort of people do they befriend? Watch their emotions. I watch my oldest son. He's as steady as could be. He is, you know, he, he takes things in stride. My other son, Adam, can handle crisis. It doesn't matter what crisis comes at him, he will handle it. Andre, you don't want to again, have major crisis coming into his life. He's not spontaneous at all, but he just handles life very slow, very pedantically, and he handles it very well. Everything is planned out. Everything is, is well measured. And so I think you really, as with everything in life, you study, you watch, you observe, you ask them why. You know, why did you do that? Why does it matter? Why, why are these friends people you want to be around? What is it you've given to your friendships today? What is it you did at school that made you come alive? Something that I, I really got onto a few years ago is a concept called flow. I don't know if you know much about flow. In sports, they call it being in the zone. Mm -hmm. um, in spirituality, you know, they, they, there's a movie called Chariots of Fire where he talks about the pleasure of God. And flow is when you find out what is exceptional about someone. You, you find that high talent in different areas of life and you find places to engage it. You treat each child differently, but when you see that they have something exceptional, yeah. you create opportunity for that specifically, not just in general. You know, can you, can you elaborate on that? When you find sure. out of something, but you create opportunities for that specific thing. What do you mean by that? So you, you might have a kid who's really good at sport. But you know, you were a football player, but this kid isn't a football player. Maybe he's a, he's a baseball player. Mm -hmm. You don't try and create him in your own image. Feed, feed the stream, feed what direction it's going in, feed the things that your children love. Flow, getting back to that, is when you see a kid anxious, very often a child is being pushed to do something they don't have a unique capacity to do. So I think even in terms of college students, when you watch the anxiety that is so prevalent on university campuses, so many of them are trying to be something that they're not. They really don't even have the capacity. Mm. A lot of them cheat, a lot of them plagiarize. So you've got all the software trying to catch kids plagiarizing and lying. And anxiety is just that. It's trying to be something you're not. You don't have the innate natural talent. Flow is when you have that talent and you're given the opportunity. You watch when time flies with a kid. That's one of the hallmarks of flow. A kid goes in their room and they start reading or they, they go out in the garden and they start building a fort. You know, and hours go by and the kid comes in and, you know, you said, well, where were you? And they said, well, I just went outside 10 minutes ago. They've been out there three hours. When you engage talent with, with a challenge, time flies. Emotional problems go away. People feel alert. They feel alive. They connect with other people. So it's observing and understanding things like flow and talent engagement. Were you, were, you a, uh, were you at the time 100 million plus yourself when you were raising your kids? No, I was not. You were I, not at 100 million. <laughs> I've been homeless a number of times. After I got my kids back, I came to this country. I was from Zimbabwe. Being from Zimbabwe, I ended up as a man without a country. I ended up having to try and raise my kids, not being allowed to work a lot of the time. Uh, my children were abducted. I spent three years running around this planet trying to get my kids back. I, I lost almost everything. 
I lost, you know, I ended up living in a van with my kids at times. Um, life did get better, but it also was up and down constantly. In about 2008, I, I ended up going, trying to get a work permit, ended up in federal detention for a number of months, an ankle bracelet for two years. Really? Because I'm a man without a country. I'm here legally. I always came in, I, you know, I came in legally. He was always here legally. But something got lost in Homeland Security after 9-11, and uh, life became very convoluted and rather complex for a long time. I bet. So, but you said you came to the States 79, right? To college in 79. In 79. Mm -hmm. And then you, uh, uh, you started, you moved to Seattle at 19. I went to South Africa after that. I was actually a minister for about six years. In and South Africa? In South Africa. Got it. Went through a divorce. My wife left. She was from Seattle. So went back there and ended up in a big custody case where she abducted the children two more times. So you moved there because that's where the kids were at. Yeah, I, I, my, I'm a father. I love my children. Of course, no doubt. So, so, so th that's the, your story is uh, very interesting. All over the place you've been and the stuff you've mm -hmm. done. But going back to the question about somebody watching this, they're worth 120 million, mm -hmm. 600 million. The challenges, like when I was coming up, the challenges I had as a kid. My parents were divorced. Didn't have a lot of money, you know. I wasn't my dad. My mom thought I was a drug dealer. My mom thought I was like the, you know, she was wondering sure. what this guy was. All these other things. Mm -hmm. So people were coming in and out all the time. But it is different, I would assume, if a kid is raised in a family worth a hundred million plus, right? I would assume that's mm -hmm. a very big difference. What are those challenges that parents can see? Because right now, like in Plano, we're mm -hmm. right now in Addison, uh, headquarters in Addison. Sure. Plano is down the street. When we were first moving to Texas, when we were looking at different cities, they said Plano had a massive heroin epidemic back in the 90s and the <laughs> 80s, and all these kids were using heroin. Mm -hmm. And everybody here was talking about, sure. be careful with Plano. And I said, how did it even take place? Then I started asking. Then they said, listen, you know, a private school, Parents have access to more money and these kids get bigger allowances and one kid found out about heroin and he tested mm -hmm. it and he shared it with other people. Next thing you know, it lasted 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the story of Plano. What are some of the challenges you see with parents who have that, who are just having a newborn? Because I know you, I asked you a question, I sure. said, do you think there's a point where it's too late? And you said, yes, there is, but I've also seen people change, right? What are some of those preventative things a parent of kids, the parent worth 100 plus mega wealthy, what can they do now? And I know some of the stuff you said is the same as everything else, it's a raising kids, mm -hmm. all this other stuff. There's gotta be something that's different about a parent that's 100 million versus somebody else. What are some things they can do now so they can prevent some of these things from, from happening? I, I think it's also, it's looking, analyzing that differently. Some parents have that 100 million because they inherited it, others have earned it. I think it's really important to give kids chores early on to have them be responsible for certain parts of the environment, their rooms, cutting the grass, learning how to do simple things that you don't pay, you know, you can pay others to do, but you do them as a family. I think it's vitally important that both parents be on the same page, that you can't go to one and ask for something and they say no, and then you go to the other and you can manipulate them. Mm. And that is common to most, you know, most situations. But teaching young, you know, young lives to take, to take control of their lives early. If they need a tutor, make sure they need a tutor. Don't just hire a tutor because they're not, you know, they, they're lazy. You've got to push them. You make sure that they attempt something before you bring in outside help. Simply getting outside help and allowing kids wow. not to develop is problematic. Thinking you can hire an expert for everything. 
parents are the best experts in a child's life. You know, thinking you can hire a psychiatrist, psychologist, educational consultant. Good parenting, present parenting, being around and being present in your child's lives when you've got every opportunity to travel and be everywhere else and you know, be working 80 hours a week. That, that will hurt you. It'll hurt anyone. Being a, you know, having a father present in his, child, you know, his children's lives, yeah. I think, is more vital, especially in the teenage years than anything. It's not that mothers become irrelevant, but as soon as you've got a child, especially a boy who be, is taller than his mother, at that point where he can look his mother in the eye, there becomes a power struggle right there. And that's why, I, you know, for me as a parent, you're a big guy, I'm a big guy, but it requires a bit of pushing around with your children. It requires being physical with your children. It requires interacting with them. In what the, do you mean by physical? Not hurting them, but playing games with them. Roughhousing, you know, oh, playing on the ground. Yeah, yeah. But allowing them to going know. And boxing with these boys and just toughening yeah. up a little bit. It is, but it's being a bigger physical presence than they are. So many issues we have with, with police now is that, you know, teenagers don't respect police. They, they're told to stop and no one's ever stopped them before. The parents never said don't and the parent grabbed them and said that's enough. I had to do with my, my children. I mean, I come back one day and I'm looking for my kids and we just moved to a really nice house near, near Microsoft from these apartments and I couldn't find them. And they'd gone back to the apartments and I go looking for them and I smell them down in this ravine smoking weed. So I said nothing, got them back to the house. And I grabbed my 16 year old at that point and I picked him up and put him against the wall. And you know, my daughter was, screaming her head off my 40 year old son saying leave him alone i didn't hurt him but I, I got his attention i got it very physically to say don't you ever you know you don't ever put yourself and you don't put your you know your family your your brother in a situation like that again and um you know uh, it just it requires you being there it requires you being a presence and uh, that demonstrates love thinking you can give your kids things that are more valuable than you you lose you will always lose thinking you can give your kids things that are more valuable than you you will lose your own presence and your own your own presence and your so own rather than i bought you a car i bought you a house i bought you this rather than i'm giving you my time mm -hmm. very interesting yeah so and, and you were saying uh, uh uh when we were talking you were saying something about harvard the kids are struggling right now with anxiety and panic attacks and they're having to hire more psychologists to deal with these students that are dealing with anxiety and panic. Do you see that as an increase? Are we having more panic and anxiety attacks today than before and why is that? It is the major issue on college campuses now. The American Psychological Association, I, I hate doing statistics stuff, but about two years ago, talked about 60% of college students will seek help for anxiety related issues you know, normally within their first year, they're going to seek out a therapist because they're anxious, they're worried. They've never looked up enough from their phone and now they're away from home and they've got to live with a new roommate. They've got to engage with people on campus. They don't know how to do it without getting drunk, without getting wasted. And somehow the most common, the, the way in which you form social relationships is going out and getting drunk with people or hooking up with people. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you've got to deal with the, the aftermath of all of that. And it, it's problematic. One of our board members is a lady called Dr. Monique Renier, and she was the Dean of Students at Harvard. And she said her primary task when she was there was to set up and to hire new therapists to be able to deal with what she called a pool of anxiety. And um, 
you think you want to go to Harvard. Craig's place on the plan for education. And it's just the cesspool of anxiety. Mm. Everybody worried, everybody acting out, doing things that are crazy. And what are they worried about? I mean, is, is, it, <laughs> is it the pressures of social media? Is it the pressures of who's got the bigger butt, who's got more followers, who's getting more likes, who's getting Everything. better grades? Or what is the pressure? Everything, because once you go to Harvard, pretty much your life's made. You have a network of people that when you need a job, you leave Harvard, you've got a job. You're not going to have to worry about much because that network, as with most Ivy League schools, that's why parents want them to go there. You've got a network mm. of extreme wealth. Yeah. You've got Harvard with almost $40 billion in endowment fund. Mm -hmm. They don't have to charge for anything, sure. but they do. But it's just a way to keep you know, the alumni connected and pouring money in and getting tech, you know, anyhow. But why, you would think, why would someone be anxious? Why would wealthy kids be anxious? And it's all the same thing. I think so many of these kids at the Ivy Leagues have only ever been factored or analyzed from one perspective. They're excellent academically. They know how to memorize and they know how to perform academically. But if they don't get the score on a test that they think they deserve, they, they fall apart. They will act out, they will hire attorneys, they will... For grades? For grades. They absolutely attorneys for grades? Oh, they will hire them. And <laughs> teachers are petrified. You, it's, it's, very, it's, it's almost impossible to get a C on, in most Ivy League universities now. Try and get a C. <laughs> you won't get it. You'll get an A or a B. And it's almost like they've been taken off the table because they don't want the, the, yeah, the administration doesn't want to have to deal with the ramifications of some kid who they admitted and said is proficient in be, to be in Harvard. They, that means they're not, they're not able to wow. get a C. And it, it, it's really a very false... I mean, it's very demanding. It's an amazing place to be. But when you only know your life based on how you can perform academically and how your mind can work, and then all of a sudden, you're out of your home environment and with you know, a few thousand other kids who are just as bright as you, you're not special anymore. Everybody else is special as well. They came from, and I find it with athletes as well. Go to college, you were the best soccer player or football player. You got to go to college. Everybody else is the best as well in their, in their high school. So isn't, isn't some of that good? Isn't some of that like normal? You know, because sometimes like what I look for is the following. Here's what I look for. Mm -hmm. I look for, you know, uh, uh, you know, we used to do this much business. Now we're doing this much. But mm -hmm. the quality used to be, you know, very good. Now the quality is bad. So I want to find out, wait a minute, what happened here for the quality to get sure. bad? Right? Run a good business. So how much of this is today of the anxiety and panic versus how much of it is I mean, 50 years ago, I was a good athlete in high school, then I went to college. Oh my gosh, these guys are so much better. And I go into the NBA or MLB mm -hmm. or whatever, and I'm like, there's so much more pressure to perform or else I lose my contract mm -hmm. or Hollywood. You know, women or men, sure. you got a little bit of a belly. This guy, uh, who's the Aquaman's guy? Uh, what's his name? The Aquaman <laughs> actor's name. What is his name? Do you know? Yeah, Jason Momoa. Momoa. Did mm -hmm. I say it right? So this Jason Momoa guy, good looking guy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people think this guy is an absolute stud. Sure. He posted a picture the other day. I, I don't know if you saw this or heard about I've this. I've heard about it. I haven't yeah, he posted it, yeah. a picture. Somebody got a picture of him and they have a belly. Twitter goes crazy off this guy, right? Look at this guy. He looks like a dad. What happened to this guy? He used to be a stud and now he looks like a dad, all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, is it new or is it just more you know, uh, bigger today because of social media? We see it faster. There's more eyeballs to it. So. Are a lot of these anxiety and panic attacks that we hear about today, is it truly going higher because of social media? 
Or is it just, hey, it's what we're going to go through. Our kids are going to go through. You and I went through it. Everybody's going to go through it. Oh, I think it's worse. I really do. I think social media really fuels it. And social media lets us live in a very, on a very shallow basis. And it's a very fast basis. It's very shallow. And I think if you don't have the depth to know who you are, you will be taken out. If you can't see yourself as bigger than the criticism, because you know. You know, I did forensics for many years, and one of the things that you learn in forensics when you go to trial is if you don't have the, the evidence and you can't argue the evidence, you've got a real problem. You, 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 can't just, you can't make a lot of noise and think that you're going to get through, and somehow you're not going to get cross-examined. But if you are convinced of the evidence and you've done the work and you've done the forensics, you've done the eyewitness testimony, you've done the forensic testing, the DNA, you've got all the, you've got all the facts. If you don't have the facts, you've got to shout and scream. And uh, if you don't have the facts, you will, you will drop. It's the same with bullying. You're not going to stop bullying on any, you know, whether it's uh, corporate bullying or academic or in high schools, you've got to make kids stronger because bullies will always be there and bullies know how to find the weak. And if you don't have something to come back at a bully with to say, no, I am, this is what I know about myself, you become the prey of the bully. So you can be academically bullied, you can be physically bullied. You know, I did an interview two, three years ago with a local station here about bullying in, you know, at Richardson High School. We run a out of school suspension program there. And I basically told, you know, this mother that I was dealing with in, you know, as part of the interview, I said, take your kid and let him, you know, do martial arts. If you want to help your kid not get bullied on the way back from school, you get your kid stronger physically. He may not be big physically now, but teach him how to protect himself. Teach him something that he's going to learn that he can, he can counteract that, not have to run. You know, he doesn't mm -hmm. run fast enough to outrun these bullies. Same academically. Find something that you're great at socially. Find a place where you can demonstrate capacity and can demonstrate how you can impact and touch people's lives with. So when you do that, you always have a place where you shine. You've always got a place where you have something to give that's important to life. So you're saying bullying is uh, something that's inevitable. And so forget about as a kid coming up, bullying as an adult. So what is a solution to prevent bullying from happening to you? Because it's not going to go away. It's never gonna I mean, go bullying away. happens in business. Bullying happens in sales. Everywhere. Bullying happens with everywhere, right? No, That's right? no matter if you're 6 years old, 15 years old, 22 years old, or 45 years old. It happens. Mm -hmm. How do you handle bullying as an adult? And I'm not saying bullying as in, hey, you're mm -hmm. driving to work. I open the window and I hit you in the face. I'm talking bullying psychologically. Media. Yeah, yeah so social media. You, you can be bullied all the time. But, you know, and if you don't know that you have something exceptional and somebody says you're useless, you are fat, you are this, you, I, if you don't know what you've got, again, it, it's just simple. It, it, it sounds trite. It sounds... What do you mean by you don't know what you got? Is it like if you don't know what you have to offer to the world, what do, what do you mean when you say when you don't know what you got? So if someone says, oh, she's so stupid. She doesn't, you know, all she can do is show a boob. I mean, you know, it gets kind of crass. But it's, it's saying, no, you know what? Who I am is I go volunteer on the weekends. I tutor kids. When you're bullied and things are said about you that are untrue and you have to try and react to the untruth of something, you can never win. You've got to pull, but you've just got to let it go. You can't defend what isn't. You can't defend what isn't? Well, you can't. How do, how do you defend an accusation that well, has no substance? So, but if you don't say anything, then that becomes a truth to most people because you didn't defend it. Isn't um, it? Because uh, if you... <laughs> You, you talk about the current administration, you know, mm -hmm. the guy, he, he doesn't let anybody say anything about this guy. He comes no. back and attacks. So are you saying, 
what he's doing and that approach may not be most effective because a lot of times I'll have, uh, yesterday we did a meeting with uh, this lady, phenomenal lady, we brought her in to kind of uh, take the culture of home office because we have sales and we have home office, so we brought mm -hmm. her in as a mediator to kind of see what she can do to bring out the best. So she interviewed everybody, everybody, she has 26 questions. We've been, dealing, we've been going through with this for a few weeks and yesterday we sat down, we had this conversation. And everybody kind of started saying, well, you know, we're this and we're that, we're this. Then she went through the deck and she said, here's what these people said. And here's what that, this, but no names. So nobody could tell who was mm -hmm. frustrated with what, sure. right? So then I paused and I said, I want you guys to know something here. You know, the seven things here, I'm gonna stop, pause, and I'm gonna address it with everybody because if I don't, this that is someone's truth, but it's not the truth, could become the truth if I don't defend it. And here's what I want to do with the seven. Do you guys have any challenge with these seven? So I kind of went through the points mm -hmm. I have to make. Then enough people came in and we realized who some of the people that said these statements, then it got clear. No, that's not the truth here in the office. But you're saying is, if somebody says something, if it's not the truth, you're saying don't defend it? In most circumstances, I mean, really. I mean, I, many years ago, I was accused of something I never did. It took three years for it to, to moderate and figure out, and almost 20 for all the truth to come out. What I had to focus on is what I knew, that I was a father, and I was gonna be present in the lives of my children. It, it hurt opportunities for work, it hurt opportunities for jobs, it hurt opportunities for many things. Ultimately, you've got to choose what you value in life. Would you have done anything differently with that on, uh, no. on what accusations happened with you? I couldn't, oh, because you couldn't. they were untrue. I mean, to be accused of something untrue, you know, I had to go to court and I had to disprove them to the best of my ability. So I, I, I think, you know. I guess, I guess the point is, sure. so here's what I mean by that. Instagram, people get on there and they say what they say. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't have time to go through 700 comments and they tell me, oh, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's mm -hmm. what's going on with this, here's what's going on with that. I don't have time for that, sure. right? I don't have time to go through all that stuff. But if a person who is a credible person and mm -hmm. is a known person decides to attack mm -hmm. and they start fabricating some words and saying, you know, here's what they're doing, creating rumors, defamation of character, mm -hmm. whatever you sure. want to call it. Aren't those two different things though? I think they are. You know, I have okay. a sister at the moment who's dealing with an issue like that and um, you know, she's had to seek legal counsel for that and is, is going to be dealing with it. But it's hurt her ability to function as a professional, you know, for 30 years, no, no issue and then has to have someone, the husband of the person she has the issue with, go to a professional board and lie about her. It got kicked out after about two years. But, you know, it, these things will hurt. But I think ultimately it's, what do you know at the core of who you are that is strong, that is steady? And mm -hmm. I think we get so distracted from really engaging and impacting the lives of other people there will always be critics in our lives. No they will never stop. No doubt there about it. There will be people who will hurt us the more successful you become. Yeah. There will be people who will want to hurt you. And so the choice is how much time do you give to them rather than going and finding more opportunities to grow and develop your business and grow and to develop your relationship. You know, it's the same with personal relationships with a husband and wife. You know, someone may say something but you know, I know with my wife that I have full trust in her. I didn't for many years because of what happened with my first marriage. But I know my wife can trust me. I have, there, there's not a question. My wife's off to Italy in a few weeks time. You know, with a, with a number of women, we have a thing called Retreat to Tuscany. Mm -hmm. 
and she's going to be she's going to be there for ten years. I I don't I have no fear of what my wife will do, and that she has no fear of what I will do while she's away. You, I how, trust her. How different is that now than it was before? What was I it accusations sure. or you know what I'm saying? Like what's the I difference? <sighs> I know her for who she is, rather than you know. I think so much in terms of relationship, we get attracted to people. We put on a front, we, they, they see us for you know, what we project to them. And what I really learned in the many years I was not <laughs> married is that when I look to be in relationship with someone, I want them to know who I am, the best of who I am, to describe my strengths, have people that know me be able to authenticate that truth, that I have a track record, that she can see me in action in the different parts of my life that I can see her, that I know her for who she is, not for her pain, not for her failings, not for any, those things are all common to life. We all have our pain, we all have our trauma. We all have the things that we fear in life. You're speaking like a pastor right now. I am, You're but speaking no like a people preacher right for now. the strengths. Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm with what that. What you give to relationship, not what you have to fix in the other person. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fully with that. But you, 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 for a second, I'm like, I'm at a church and Pastor <laughs> Mark is speaking no, right there, and he's saying, "I've been there for yeah. many years, for thirty years." Yeah, but so let, let's transition. I know sure. we, you and I were talking earlier, and you said that um, uh, Howard Schultz's name came up, mm -hmm. right? We were yeah. talking about Howard Schultz, and we we're talking about I don't know how Howard. Schultz, how did Howard Schultz come up? What were I, we talking about? I did for? work for his company, Mavron, back in the late 90s. Mavron is his venture them. capital company. Yes, you yeah. work with his Mavron, with the venture capital mm -hmm. company. And then the conversation went from there to, you know, him running for office. And I said, I don't think Howard Schultz knows how to answer tough questions. He gets rattled. He gets nervous. And you can't do that. Maybe some of these guys are better one-on-one -on -one people mm -hmm. than they are uh, what do you call it, a, a camera on you people? Because there's two different the types moment, of... Yeah, yeah there's, people, reaction, there's yeah. people I've seen one-on-one -on -one that are unbelievably sure. powerful. You put them on stage, mm -hmm. they are horrible. And then there's people I've seen that are incredible on stage. Mm -hmm. You put them one-on-one, -on -one, they're so nervous with you. True. They can't even hang with a conversation. So obviously Howard doesn't build a company of 400,000 employees not being good one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. That's very obvious. Yeah. You don't build a company of 400,000 employees and go and do where Starbucks now is everywhere. And then I asked you a question. I said, so did you have dealings? You said, yes. Then you said you were part of a board where you were in a room. Correct me if I'm wrong. I had to report to the board. You had to report to mm -hmm. the board. With It was yourself to report to the board. Melinda Gates. And Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. And, one, and Howard one Schultz. One or two others, yeah. And Howard Schultz was one of them. He was one. So how was that when you were dealing with, you know, three personalities? Mm -hmm. yeah. One is uh, the wife, and now they run the Gates Foundation. And... Mm -hmm. Trillion dollar, two trillion dollar company guys, That's right. and the number one coffee company in the world. Mm -hmm. How was that? Watching all these personalities there corresponding and working together. It was actually really very controlled, very quiet. Dan Leverton, who's the CEO of Mavron, really controlled most of it. Schultz is the money behind it all. You know, the, Ga the Gateses had, had invested in it because it was healthcare, early dot com, trying to deliver. Uh, medicine, you know, over the internet and over phones. But uh, Jeff Bezos was very young in his business back then. Somebody had the warehouse, was only doing books. Was actually really very was reserved. This? It was 2000. Oh, that's, so that's only so a few years after years he had been, been yeah. around. Wow. So, but he was on the board. And he was already being seen by, I think, the other tech giants at that time as being someone who was going somewhere. 
And um, Melinda Gates is very, very kind, very thoughtful. I don't think did a lot that I can remember. I mean, it's, it's 20 years ago almost, but uh, Schultz is very, very thoughtful. I mean, very strategic in, in and also very, I, I think, very strong as a personality in a, in a boardroom like that. He, he really was very strong as a personality, yeah. really. Yeah, very controlled, very quiet, but very strong. Wow. Dan Leverton was the guy, very engaging, you know, who was the CEO of, of Mavron. Was, was Schultz company. a stronger personality or Be uh, Bezos? Schultz. Schultz. I think Bezos is far brighter academically. I mean, or intellectually. I think he's just brilliant. I think Schultz is someone who just who works very hard, who will not give up under any circumstance. I think Bezos is the same, but Bezos had a far greater vision, and is far more expansive in the way that he looks at the world. Uh, where Schultz has really he's got one product and mm -hmm. he's developed that one product into something that has scaled, you know, but it's still the same product. Now, what's, what's crazy about where you live, Seattle, I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking about Bezos, Gates, Schultz. I mean, that's, yeah. and then obviously you have the rest of the names. You got Paul Allen, who's no longer, that's right. and then Balmer, who moved to, you know, LA. Uh, uh, LA. Mm -hmm. But that is a, I mean, it, two out of the four trillion dollar companies mm -hmm. are out of the same city. Well, you so, had Boeing there, you've got a lot of other ones, yep. like REI, which are much smaller. But there are a lot of great, I mean, amazing companies. Why is that? Why is that? Why? I don't know. <laughs> is it, it, it kind of like pure fluke? Like, you know, Armenians, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. Every Middle Eastern Armenian <laughs> lives in Glendale, California, uh -huh. right? Assyrians, Torlak. The other day I spoke at Modesto <laughs> with a thousand people. A couple sure. hundred Assyrians showed up in Torlak, from Torlak, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, you have uh, Iranians, Persians <laughs> live in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, sure. right? Why Why Seattle? I don't know. You've got serial killers in Seattle as well. I mean, they all come from Seattle. I mean, they really do. Vancouver and Seattle, where the, the world's greatest serial killers hail from. So I, I don't know whether it's you stay inside all day thinking through issues and it's you know, too much rain and the weather. I don't know. Maybe it's a depressive person. I don't know. I, I really don't. I, you know, I, I would be curious if somebody knew, because, mm -hmm. you know, they did a study on why Silicon Valley and how, sure. how that became what it is. And now they're trying to do it to Austin and... Atlanta's music, Nashville's music, some of these places, but I'd be curious to know about Seattle. So, you know, uh, Gates, I know sure. Bill Gates, I've heard many different things about Bill Gates, mm. right? Personality-wise, you see Steve Jobs and you say, oh my gosh, I mean, I've heard Steve Jobs throw stuff around and we watched <laughs> the movies about Steve Jobs. One was Ashton Kutcher played it, mm -hmm. another one was played by another guy. It was like almost like a year or two years that all these movies were coming out about Steve Jobs. I don't know if you remember that. So you're like, mm -hmm. who is really Steve Jobs? But Bill Gates, not everybody knows. You just kind of read about who he was. And I hear that his temper was out of control, where he was almost mm -hmm. maniacal about what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So having worked with a lot of these folks, mm -hmm. some of them were billionaires sure. that you work with that were associated with uh, 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 some of these companies. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about Bill Gates' personality that you know about? I know a lot of people have worked really closely with him. Okay. I mean, I really have. Back in the, because I got to Seattle in 91. And Seattle, you know, Microsoft was big, but it wasn't nearly that big. And I've worked with a lot of people, the you know, early 100 employees and whatever else. But I think he has something that's called Asperger's, which is generally very, you know, analytical and very strong academically in terms of the sciences and obviously computer science. But as, as strong as they are in the intellect and the, the scientific part of life and logic, it almost diminishes their social capacity and their emotional capacity. They don't feel. So the boundaries, and they, they wouldn't worry about saying something that would hurt somebody else. 
get it done. You know, why you want to go home? What do you got to go home for? Gates got married somewhat late in life. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, probably oh, yeah. around in his 40s. Because why relationship? You know, it's, it's not important. What's important is the code. Get the code out. And when I first got, you know, I'd go to the campus at Microsoft and I, I spoke to the, the head of HR many years ago. And she actually said, you know, one of the things we value with people is ADHD and ADD because they think creatively. We want people who can work and they can almost work in hyperstates for a few days because that's really the DNA of what Microsoft was in the early days. They wouldn't sleep for two, three days and they would be found under a desk after a few days, get the job done. And think analytically, think creatively, think in these hyperstates and if you get the job done, you get the project done, that's what matters. And that's so much what Microsoft is, it's, it's very project oriented. You work on a project, you're an employee of Microsoft, when the project's done, you, you actually go through an interview process to be involved in new projects, or maybe even in a new mm. division. You know, you, you can actually very often choose to move around, um, and you apply to be, become part of a team. So get the job done, get that project out, get that product you know, finished and out of there. So it's, it's almost like a, I read a book, two books, one is called First Rate Madness, and another book called Hypomanic Edge, mm -hmm. and it talked about the level of craziness and success uh, uh, in America, like how many, and he talked about bipolar, ADHD, mm -hmm. hypomanic, hypo, sure. mani, uh, uh, manic, mm -hmm. then uh, uh, Asper Asperger's, is it Asperger's, Asperger's. or Asperger's? Asperger's, B-E-R-G-E-R-S. So all of these things you read about, and you say, you know, there's even autism, there's a certain level of genius in it, right? So I, I've worked with a few people mm -hmm. that had Asper, sure. Asperger's, and it was uh, uh, very interesting because nothing hurt. It was yeah. just very logical, no mm -hmm. emotion, none of this stuff taking place. And in that kind of an environment, do you almost see like a thread between the guys that make it to the highest level that they have a higher level of threshold for pain and they don't really get respond too much emotionally? I think in the tech industry, very much so. I don't think... Uh, in a lot of other industries, I think it's like that. I think a lot of great CEOs are very socially aware and very emotionally intelligent. I don't think Gates is at all, but I think being married to Melinda Gates, who is very much that way, I think has really helped him. I think a lot of other CEOs may not, you know, Gates obviously didn't go to college. He was far ahead of going to college. He knew what he knew, you know, and he, they really couldn't teach him much. He knew how to think. But I think a lot of other CEOs really know how to manage people, they read people, they understand people. Bill Gates understood code. He understood you know, the, the technical world and he was brilliant at that. And he got other people around like Balm and others who, you know, was really just interesting fun, characters. Fun like, guy, dancing, he was, very kind of different. Big bumbling guy, yeah. he was just, yeah. Did, did he kind of balance him out a little bit? Did, did him and Paul Allen balance him out a little bit? I think so. Well, Ellen, Ellen exited pretty, pretty early. I mean, he got sick and um, I think he got leukemia or something mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. basically left. And he really followed what he loved in life. He loved sport. I Alan. mean, he loved creativity. Of course, you own he all those experience Seattle teams. Movie, yeah, experience uh, music project or yeah, the big monstrosity under the Space Needle he created. He was into music. He was into sports. He was into the arts. 
Yeah, I, I remember I was at Venice, and his yacht was there. I mean, he, he has a, I don't know if you call that a yacht or a ship. A I don't ship. know what you call that. It. It's not a yacht. Sure. It's a $150 million yacht slash ship right. with a helicopter, mm-hmm. you know, pad on the top of it. It was uh, very interesting. You know, when you when you read about all these personalities, how much how much in Seattle is there recruiting like, Seattle, you know, Microsoft people recruiting Amazon, Amazon people recruiting. Is there a lot of that going on? Amazon take from Microsoft. Oh, Amazon takes they from Microsoft. They have taken the best of Microsoft. Microsoft's really been reinvented with Nadella coming in there. Mm. He's brought in a lot of new talent, but a lot of the old established talent at Microsoft has gone to Amazon. Do they do they spite each other? Is there like a is it like you know Red Sox Yankees type <laughs> of energy, or at this point no one really cares? They, it's just they're very different companies. I mean they really are. But you know when you are taking major talent from Microsoft and you know building out you know essentially what Nadella was trying to do with the cloud. And they've done that at Amazon by taking many of the, the, the top talent at Microsoft. I think there's, it, it's good competition. But obviously Amazon is so much bigger in terms of what they are doing and how they, you know, how they view the world. And Microsoft, you know, Nadella has done really great things with Microsoft. He's got them back focused. Very on impressive because there was a time where a lot guy. of people said Microsoft is done. You know, yeah. if they come out with these free softwares, the Googles, and they put them out there, and what is Microsoft going to do to make money? Mm-hmm. Very, very strategic moves they made. Very strategic moves they made. He is. He's a good guy. How do you, uh, uh, how do you view... Uh, uh, Amazon yourself, because I know we were talking about how Amazon <laughs> gets even more data than Google does. Mm-hmm. How do you view what Amazon's doing right now? Because I know they're dominating the marketplace. They, they're absolutely ruthless. I think they're almost like what Microsoft was back when Gates was in his 20s and 30s. They're absolutely ruthless in their quest for really perfection and being able to perfection. gather data. It really is. It's got a, it. Interesting. The closer to perfection, the closer to asking questions about everything. And I think they've really honed the science of trying to figure out the right questions to ask. And they're asked constantly and they are people are pushed to answer them. You don't let things just hang it at Amazon. You are pushed, you know, to a conclusion, to an answer. And you're not allowed to just let things progress and somehow business develop. You business is developed. And um is it a high-pressure type of an environment? Is very. It a, very? Very. Is it a place <laughs> where if I work at, like, am I going to chase to add it to my resume, or am I going because I like to work at this place for 10 or 20 years? I don't think anyone has worked at Amazon for that length of time. <laughs> I think that the, really the, yeah, the, the understanding is with Amazon, you're there for two years. That's uh, the timeline. It really is. I've got friends who are recruiters for Amazon. And I, I regularly have people who come out of U, uh, UTD in mm-hmm. Dallas here and SMU that I extend to some of these recruiters. They get hired. And everyone wants to work for Amazon because there's always more yeah. work. And they, they pay them decently, but it is very high pressure. You, they don't deal with mistakes very well. How do they deal with them? You don't last there. <laughs> You're out of there very quickly if you make... Oh, really? You, know, you don't repeat the same thing more than once or twice. You really don't. You're out of there. And the demands really are. You have got to do what they want you to do. And they don't apologize because they see themselves as the, you know, they are the best at everything now. They really believe that. And to some extent, they're proving it out if you want to look at the externals. But I know a lot of people who've left there very burnt out, who were at Microsoft for 15, 20 years, who within two years at Amazon are 
you know, they may be in their mid to late 40s, but they, they're done. They are so mm -hmm. done with anything professionally. And they don't have to do anything, but they, they don't want to do anything. And I think that's somewhat problematic because I think people always need to know that they have got more to give in life. Yeah, I agree. And um, well, what, what's causing it? Is, it the, is there any element of fun and any element of recognition? Any element of, man, you're doing a great job, so proud of you. Any element of that or no? If we're seeking perfection, the game's got to be at a whole different level. I think it's more the, the recognition is you performed. I don't think that, and you're paid very well. That's the recognition. That's it. I, primarily, I mean, I, from what I know, and I, I really do, I, I've, I played cricket in Seattle. I, I, you know, I was a cricket, I played with a lot of these guys, saw the Microsoft cricket teams. So I got in with a lot of the guys who are, you know, who are really high up at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And I connect with them whenever I go back to Seattle. We always get together and we you know, go out to eat and I'll go watch them play a game. And they're all getting old and pudgy like me. You know, I, I'm older than most of them, but they, they tell me the stories. I mean, they really do. And some of them are heads of major divisions. You know, in data, the guy who wrote the book in SQL Server, Caden Patel, uh, he was hired into there. And like, he's done very well there, but they're all tired. They, they're pushed and they're excited, but they get tired very quickly. Microsoft is a very different organism, it really is. They've created a far more congenial atmosphere there. You walk in there, there's foosball tables and there's Pac-Man machines and they're building a cricket stadium at Microsoft <laughs> and they're right next to thing called Merrymore Park, they're yeah. right by a big lake. And it's, it's very, it's just a lot easier as an atmosphere mm. and as a culture. So you, you, uh, we talked about mental disorder earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts about how we are solving mental disorders today? Because you're seeing mm -hmm. immediate to you know uh, medication. Mm -hmm. Immediately we're going to all this stuff, and you know you don't understand. I need help with this. How do you view that? Because I know you've dealt with this for a while. Sure. The way that I look at it is part of <laughs> what I've really got into. It's called positive psychology. It's the psychology of Puzzled. strength. Positive. Positive Sorry, psychology. Sorry, I had a Got mouth it. thing put in recently. Yeah. But positive psychology. Positive psychology is the psychology of human happiness. So it says, what, instead of saying what depresses us, we say, what are the patterns of the things that make us happy? Mm. What are the patterns of the things that make us connected with other people? So social mm -hmm. psychology. Mm -hmm. So we study things like that in education, in mental health, even in addiction. I gave a talk to a bunch of psychiatrists and psychologists recently on addiction mm -hmm. and talked about this concept of flow. How when I've enabled people to discover talent and really engage it in a meaningful way, so many of the addiction issues that they came to me with or some of the people that I worked to, with, they go away. They become addicted to what is delivered back to them in life. I think so much of psychology, when it looks at simply what's wrong, how do we fix it, is problematic as well. Because so much of life is about perspective. And I, if I see myself as being weak, as being less than, I'm highly susceptible to being depressed, to being anxious, to being isolated from other people. When I see myself as being important, as someone who has something to give, I have a place to give it. I have a place to, you know, create wealth and to give it to other people and to see their lives change. My mental health has a far greater likelihood of thriving than me simply having to go back and undo some sort of trauma that I really will never get a grasp on. 
you can go back and you can try and figure out whatever bad thing happened to you in life and good luck if you ever really can understand it. You're not. So you're not from the typical traditional clinical, you know, a psychologist no. or therapist sister and says, hey, what affected you when you were a kid? This is why you are the way you are today. We've all got what we've got. And we've all, most of us got in somewhat good measure. Life has not been kind to most people. Everybody has got something in their background. They've got loss and they've got disappointment and they've got hurt and they've got pain and they've been used and they've whatever. What makes me bigger than all of that? And if I don't know what makes me bigger than that, all those things will make me less than. How do I find out what's bigger than all that? You do some hard work. You go into the work of discovery. You find out what have I got to give intellectually? What, what, what am I exceptional at you know, intellectually? What have other people said about me? This is forensics. Where am I in flow intellectually? What are my friends and family? What have experts said about me? Where am I happy? When I walk into a classroom, what classes do I look forward to going to? Mm. In social groups, as I said, my oldest son, he's got his three or four close friends. He's not happy in, in big groups. My, my second son, what, where do you m impact people? Small groups, large groups, YouTube, you're doing this on YouTube. You know, it's your physical presence, it's your intellect, it's your ability to connect with people. It's your ability to have people in social media put out a product that is not just thrown out there. People want it, they grasp, mm. they get a hold of it. So it's finding, you know, how do I handle crisis? How do I, it's talking about my big why. I mean, everyone talks about the big why now. I asked a kid the other day who's about to go to college, I said, why are you going to college? She had no answer for it at all. Majority of kids who go to college now, if they haven't sat down and they haven't figured out why are they going, mm -hmm. they've got something that they want to develop and become bigger and better at. They've got a career and a future ahead of them. But it all comes down to, for me, it's design determines purpose. Know what you're uniquely capable of doing. And I have a simple model, it's called SPIES, S-P-I-E-S. Who are you spiritually? That is in terms of character, in terms of motive and mission in life. Why do you do the things that you do? That's S, P, physical. What have I got to give? Who am I physically? It can be physical touch. We went out to lunch and you put, yeah, you reached across and you touched my arm. You connect with people like that. It's not just being a physical athlete. It can be somebody who, when you stand up and speak, you command presence. In a courtroom, you command. It can be something quiet. My sister's a psychologist. People come into her office, she creates a calm presence because of who she is. That's physical presence. Who are you then? Yeah, that's the P, intellectually, who are you? Emotionally, who are you? How do you handle crisis? How, do you, how emotionally intelligent are you? How do you read people? How do you feel? You know, how do you manage those feelings? How do you manage disappointment? How have you overcome bad things in your life? And then S is socially. Who are you socially? So it's spies. Spies. S-P-I-E-S -E is the e emotional. Okay. S-P-I-E-S. I look at myself. I love connecting with people. You know, I have lived at Starbucks in many ways for the last years since I got to Seattle. I go into Starbucks anywhere in this country or anywhere, anywhere, <laughs> and I'll have 10 friends within a few days. I will know everybody. I can, there's certain Starbucks that I'll go into. People think that I somehow own them because everybody, it's like cheers when I walk in there. People know me and I want to connect with people. I love, you know, I, I actually, I go to a little African-American church here in Dallas. I'll preach there sometimes. I love, to, I love speaking. You know, it's, just, it's who I am. Mm. It's people in general.
the worst part of where I connect socially is if I'm at a, say a networking event or just a small event, when someone says, well, we want you to stand up and tell who, who you are and what you do. It's like, I'm a blithering idiot. I, it's like, for what? I know who I am, I know what I do. What, you know, I, I honestly will get anxious. But I've spoken in front of 5,000 people. It doesn't faze me at all. I, I don't, I'll stand up and sit down. I've said what I said and it hasn't touched me. You know, I was in flow. I'll be up for an hour and I'll sit down and felt like two minutes. But find out where you thrive. Find opportunity to do more of that. Find out when you, what sort of audiences you speak to that have most deeply impacted. You know, what, what's the result of change? So this is very interesting and we're very aligned on this. I, you say forensics, right. I say study your trends. Sure. Study your trends, yeah. ask yourself what kind of people you get along with, who you don't, why don't you, what causes, what happened there. It's repetition. The, uh, no doubt about it. It's repetition with gathering data about yourself, which right. is somewhat forensics that you gotta do it on is. your own self. So I like that. Spy spiritually, how can you give back mm -hmm. spiritually, how can you give back physically, intellectual, what do you mm -hmm. have to offer, emotionally and socially. That's right. Spies. Spies. Brilliant. Easy wow. to remember. It is. I love this. <laughs> well, Mark, this has been a Thank blast. You. Truly, it's been a blast. Uh, where can people find your book? Is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon, yeah. I'm actually rewriting it at the moment, but it, it's on Amazon, and I'm actually putting the spies whole analogy into it and shortening it. It's too long, <laughs> but it's a, it's a really good book. You're making a book shorter. <laughs> and can people find you social media? Are you on social media for them they, to find you? They can. Um, I'll put the links below as well so they can discovery, go reach out to you. The best way for their own personal discovery is the mylifescene.com. Okay. It's very similar to what Jordan Peterson does. My life scene. Scene. S-C-E-N-E, like Got crime it. scene investigation. Yep. It's my life scene. And so it's a whole pro, 64 different videos and tests and integration into your life to take you through the whole spies analogy and you profile your life just like an FBI profiler would profile a criminal you profiling what's right yeah. and great and exceptional about your life I love that we Mark, appreciate, appreciate you for coming thank out. you really so enjoyed much it. thank it's you great to meet you and big to be here thank you thanks everybody for listening and by the way if you haven't already subscribed to value Tainment on iTunes please do so give us a five-star write a review if you haven't already and if you have any questions for me that you may have you can always find me on snapchat Instagram Facebook or YouTube just search my name Patrick Bid David and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.